want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts 21. Acts 21 this morning. So we've been working through this book of Scripture together. Here's the thought I want you to consider with me today. That God's will is always good. God's will is always good. Now, if someone says this to you, and maybe you've heard somebody say this in the past, God's will is always good, God is always good all the time. And you might quote a verse like Romans 8, 28, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. While we hear that, how do you reconcile the goodness of God's will with people in Ukraine facing an enemy attack? How do you reconcile the goodness of God's will with a friend or family member, or you personally being diagnosed with cancer? How do you reconcile the goodness of God's will with COVID-19 and all that's gone on around our world because of that? I do believe that God's will is always good. But sometimes as we go through life, it may not feel like God's will is always good. I want you to look with me. We're going to look at a larger section this morning, but I just want you to see one verse as we begin. Acts 21 and verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 14. We'll look at verse 13 a little bit. Verse 14 says, And when he, this is Paul, would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, The will of the Lord be done. The will of the Lord be done. See, what was going on here is Paul was intent on making his journey to Jerusalem. And each place that he stopped on his journey, on his way to Jerusalem, the believers would come to him and say, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. It's dangerous in Jerusalem. You're going to be imprisoned in Jerusalem. There are people trying to catch you and they're in Jerusalem. Don't go to Jerusalem. But in this last stop that he has here in our text this morning in Caesarea, after they tried to persuade him not to go to Jerusalem, Paul insists that he's going to go. He says he would not be persuaded. And they said, the will of the Lord be done. This is interesting because they're insisting that God's will be done. I think it's interesting that they not, they're not saying, well, Paul, whatever you want, let your will be done. They didn't say, well, Paul, we'd rather, really rather it was our will that got done. No, after all of this back and forth between believers trying to convince Paul not to do what Paul was intent on doing, the conclusion of the whole group was, Lord, let the will of the Lord be done. Lord, whatever you want to be done, let it be done. What do we do when God's will doesn't seem to line up with what we think is good? Is God's will always good? Let's look back at verse 1 and... We'll begin, kind of get into this section and, and understand why they could say the will of the Lord be done. It says in verse 1, It came to pass that after we were gotten from them, so they leave the elders at the church at Ephesus where they had visited with them on the island of Miletus, they launched and they, we came with a straight course unto Coos and the day following unto Rhodes and from thence unto Patara. Finding a ship sailing over into Phoenicia, we went aboard and set forth. Now when we discovered Cyprus, we left it on the left hand. In other words, they passed by in the ship, and the ship was to the right of the island of Cyprus, which was on the left-hand side. If you were mapping this out on a map, you would see them bouncing from island to island, kind of on the southern coast of Greece, if you will, as they're making their way back east towards Jerusalem. And it says, they sailed into Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unlaid her burden. And finding disciples, we tarried there seven days, who said to Paul through the Spirit that he should not go up to Jerusalem. So here it was, entire, Paul, don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. 
And when we'd accomplished those days, we departed and went our way, and they all brought us on our way. You see the church coming together with wives and children. Till we were out of the city, and we kneeled down on the shore and prayed. And when we had taken our leave one of another, we took ship, and they returned home again. And when we had finished our course from Tyre, we came to Tolmes and saluted the brethren and abode with them one day. And the next day, we that were of Paul's company departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven. Do you remember who these seven were? You have to go all the way back to an earlier place in Acts when the church was growing in Jerusalem and developing and there were certain widows that were being left out in the daily ministry that was taking place in the church. The widows were benefiting by receiving food and other things from the church and there was too much for the pastors to take care of all on their own and so they selected some seven other men who could help them. Stephen was one of these men, the first martyr, but Philip is also one of these Seven. Philip is known as the evangelist because he later left Jerusalem and traveled and God used him in a great way in the ministry as he preached the gospel in places outside of Jerusalem. And now it seems though Philip has settled in Caesarea. And so he's one of the seven. And he abode, Paul and all of those abode with him. And the, man, the same man had four daughters, virgins, which did prophesy. And when we tarried there many days, there came down from Judea a certain prophet named Agabus. We'll get back to Agabus in a moment. Because here is Paul with his ministry team, Luke and Timothy and Tychicus and Epaphroditus. There's a whole group of men traveling with them. And in fact, the group is enlarged somewhat because there were leaders from several different churches, Gaius from Derby and others who had joined with Paul, and they were helping to take an offering to Jerusalem. Paul wanted to get this offering that he'd collected from the other Gentile churches to help the needy believers in Jerusalem. They were struggling financially. And so this seems to be the purpose for which Paul was making this really long journey to get to Jerusalem. He wasn't going to Jerusalem just because, I just really want to go to Jerusalem. He'd already been there. He had a lot of ministry there. God had used Paul greatly in Jerusalem and beyond as he had served God. Paul wasn't going to Jerusalem because there was no place else to serve God. There were many places that needed to hear the gospel. But Paul had a particular priority on going to Jerusalem. And we'll understand that better later on in the message this morning. But Paul was traveling and he's traveling all of this distance to try to get back to Jerusalem. He had a priority in doing so. I don't know about you, but I don't really enjoy traveling just in the traveling part. I enjoy the destination more than the journey sometimes. This past week, Monday morning, I got up and went down to the airport, got on a plane and flew to California and then drove an hour and a half up into the high desert outside of L.A. And Tuesday morning, got to preach to a whole college uh, uh, in their chapel and had a great time in that service. And had one of the young men come up afterwards. He wants to come out this summer and serve with us. So that was a blessing. Had a, another young man surrender to the ministry Tuesday morning. That was exciting, too. It's exciting to see God working in lots of different places. And then Tuesday evening, preach Tuesday morning, Tuesday evening, I went back to the airport and flew to Salt Lake City, Utah. And then my dad picked me up late there. I think I landed around 10.30 or 11, 10.30, something like that. And we drove up into the mountains where we were meeting up with these other men for this men's retreat. And I just remember all week long feeling so tired from all the traveling. Now I'm thankful I got back home early, early enough yesterday. I got to bed early, so I feel good, got lots of energy. And I can preach for a long time. No, I'm just kidding. I'll be fine. But you know, traveling to me is not that much fun. It's about where I'm going. 
but I'm willing to go through TSA and sit on an airplane, you know, and, and go, you know, cramp. They don't make airplanes for people my size. And even in the exit row, it's still tight. And, you know, you're just like this the whole time. And you can't move and your knees hurt and your shoulders hurt. And, and you got people sneezing on you and spilling their drinks on you and all the other things that go on. And traveling is not that exciting to me. But the reason sometimes we make a trip is because we have a destination. We have a purpose. I mean, think about it. Just in this neighborhood, there's six or seven, at least probably more, grocery stores you could go to to get groceries and food for your house. And you might go to Kroger, which is right down the road over here, and pick up some supplies there. If you're like our family and you're on a budget and you're trying to feed the angry horde, you know, we go to Aldi over here because it's cheaper and we can get more groceries for the same amount of money. And or maybe you're trying to eat really organic and healthy, and so you drive over, you're not worried about the money, you have lots of it, so you go to Whole Foods over here, and you buy your groceries there. Or maybe you go down to H-E-B, because H-E-B carries all the different sauces and spices and things that you can't get anywhere else. I mean, they even carry Whataburger ketchup and Chick-fil-A sauce and all the fun things that you can get at H-E-B that you can't get at some of the other grocery stores. See, the question when you're going out in Houston to look for groceries is not the lack of opportunity. Rather, where you go is often determined by your priority. And this morning, as, you, as we've read, as Paul is traveling from place to place, saying goodbye to all these people that he loves very much, he is traveling, his destination is Jerusalem, and he's going with a great purpose. I think it's important for every one of us to know this, that distance must not deter us from following God's will. There are a lot of things that people will use as excuses for why I can't follow God. Well, I have to go a long way. I have to go to a place that's uncomfortable. We might even say, well, I don't have enough resources. I don't have enough money. I don't have the time. Maybe I lack ability. I can't speak well. I, can't, I don't think as well as some other people. I just don't have as many gifts as somebody else. But can I remind you this morning that every good gift and every perfect gift cometh yeah. down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Can I remind you this morning that our God is God and He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He has all the resources. He has all the money. Can I remind you this morning that every moment that you have, every second, every minute of every day is a gift from God to you so you can use for Him. Everything you have comes from God. See, the problem that keeps people from following God's will is not a problem of resources. It's a problem of priority. It's a problem of priority. We all have the same amount of time in the day. While we all have different amount of money, we all have enough. God's promised to supply our needs. Say, well, I don't have enough for that thing. To... But you have enough for today. We have enough. Say, well, I don't have the talent somebody else has. You have exactly the talent that God wants you to have. Our problem is not a lack of resources. It's not the distance. It's a problem of priority. Paul is willing to make a great priority on traveling all of this distance, visiting all these islands. You say, why, Paul? Just to get to Jerusalem? What's so special about Jerusalem? You say, well, he has to get an offering there. We'll see more about that in a minute. But why couldn't somebody else take the offering, Paul? We'll answer that question a little bit later, too, because I think it's important to understand what Paul's priority was, but I just want you to think about that this morning. Because many people make a lot of excuses for why they can't follow God's will. It's not a question of resource. It's a question of priority. Of priority. See, you can't travel to Jerusalem and do five other things at the same time. You can't serve God and mammon, as the scripture says. No man can serve two masters. 
question of priority. You see, following God will cost you something. It'll cost you something. Distance must not deter you from following God's will. Look now back in our text, Acts 21, verse 11. It says, and when he was coming to us, this is Agabus, when he came and joined up with them, he was a prophet coming from Judea. He took Paul's girdle, he took off Paul's belt. This would have been kind of a weird thing, but it's often in Scripture. We see Ezekiel using different action sermons and Jeremiah and others. They would lay on their side for a period of time to picture something or they'd shave uh, the hair off of part of their body or they would do different things to illustrate the message that they were trying to get across. And here, Agabus, as a prophet sent from God, he comes to Paul and he takes Paul's belt and he binds up, it says, his hands and his feet. He bound his own hands and feet. So you can imagine, this was quite picturesque. I'm not going to do it for you this morning, but you can imagine... Agabus there tied up with Paul's belt on the floor. And what does he say to him? Thus saith the Holy Ghost. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man that owneth this girdle and shall deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now again, I mean, if we were here this morning, all of a sudden somebody walks in from the back, says, I'm a prophet sent from God. Walks up the stage, grabs my belt. First of all, we're going to have a problem there. But he takes it off and he binds his hands and his feet and he lays down on the ground and he says, the Holy Ghost says, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be, they're going to bind you. We'd sit up and take notice. We'd be talking about that afterwards, wouldn't we? Might say, what's going on with this guy? What's he saying? What's he doing? Well, Agabus he wasn't just a strange or an unknown person. Clearly, they knew this man as a prophet sent from God. And it says in verse 12 of Acts 21, And when we heard these things, both we, so this is Luke and all the others traveling with Paul, and they of that place, those who lived in Caesarea, those who were over at Philip's house, they besought him not to go up to Jerusalem. See, distance must not deter us from following God's will, but it's not just distance that keeps people, it's also danger that deters people from following God's will. Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, it's going to be dangerous. They're going to bind you up. They're going to throw you in prison. And by the way, all of these, Agabus and all these other disciples that had spoken to Paul, Luke is very careful to record for us here in the book of Acts that they were speaking what the Holy Spirit told them to speak. So this is not just people just sort of making things up. We have recorded in inspired scripture for us that their words were words that the Holy Spirit had given them to share. And by the way, their warnings came true. Their warnings came to pass. See, Paul knew that by following God, he would face great danger. Great danger. But this is not Paul's first time to face danger. He's already been stoned. He's already been in prison. He's already been beaten. Paul has faced great danger in his life already for the Lord. And nothing could persuade him or dissuade him from following God's will. Danger must not deter you from following God's will. Hey, my friends, this morning, have you ever thought about the danger that you risked today just by getting in your car and driving to church? So well, I won't come to church. It's too dangerous to drive and get out on the road. Well, you... If you go to work tomorrow, it's just as dangerous, probably more so. You say, well, if I, if I go do that, it might be hard. I might get tired. I don't know what I'll do. It is dangerous to follow God's will, but danger shouldn't deter us from following God's will. Because the reality is, for the believer, the safest place you can be is in God's will. Because it's dangerous just to be alive. But if you're in the hollow of God's hand, 
There's nothing that can pluck you out of his hand. And if the Lord says, I'm ready to bring you home, then he takes us right home. They're telling Paul, Paul, it's going to be dangerous for you to go to Jerusalem. Don't let danger deter you from following God's will. But it wasn't just the danger. There was even more. Look at verse 13. Paul answered. He answers Agabus. He answers all those who say, Don't go to Jerusalem. It's too dangerous. Paul says, What mean ye? to weep and to break mine heart. Paul cares about these believers. He, these are his brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul's not just, well, I don't care what you have to say. I'm going to Jerusalem with or without you. No, he says, oh, you're weeping and breaking my heart. He says, I, he, he's demonstrating his love for these people. Understand, Paul's not being hard-headed here. He's not being bull-headed here. He's not just being stubborn and saying, I'm going to do this no matter what. No, he says, oh, you're breaking my heart. He says, for I'm ready not to be bound only, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Distance must not deter you from following God's will. Danger must not deter you from following God's will. Even death must not deter us from following God's will. The Apostle Paul wrote about this. Philippians chapter 1, he says, for to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. He said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. In your life, in your death, you can either magnify Christ or you can obscure him you can either help to shine the light of the gospel as Christ's work in you shines out to this world or you can close it down we could be like a, a, a light like a candle set up in a high place where everybody can see it or as Jesus talks about in his sermon on the mount we can cover it with that bushel basket this little light of mine I'm going to let it Shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. See, the scripture has a lot to say about death and how it ought not deter us from following God's will. Let me take you to a very familiar passage on death, James chapter 4. James 4 and verse 13. He says, Go to now, ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow. Hey, you have big plans. You, you're going to go here. You're going to do this and that. He says, you don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. He says, what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. Here, he corrects what we ought to say in the next verse. He says, for that ye ought to say, verse 15, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. Remember, God's will is always good. It's always good. And so if the Lord wants me to do something, that's what I am going to do. It says in verse 16, but now ye rejoice in your boastings, all such rejoicing is evil. When you make a boast in yourself, say, this is what I'm going to do. This is my plan. This, look what I accomplished. Look what we did. He said, that's evil. He says, therefore, to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him. To him it is sin. To him it is sin. Death must not deter you from following God's will. This life, it's just a vapor. So live this life for the next life. Look back, if you will, back to chapter 20 in Acts. We looked at this last Sunday, but it's all part of this theme as Paul is traveling to Jerusalem. Look what he says in verse 24. But none of these things move me. 
Neither count I my life dear unto myself, so that I might finish my course with joy. And the ministry which I have received of the Lord Jesus to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul understood he was put on this earth for a purpose, and he wanted to live out that purpose as long as God gave him life. He didn't let death deter him from following God's will. Distance, lack of resources, finances, time, all those things deter people from following God's will. Danger. Danger keeps a lot of people, well, I don't want to, that looks a little bit dangerous. Will deter people from following God's will. Even death deters people from God's will. But how many of us will travel great distances for things that we want to do? We'll travel great distance to go visit family. We'll travel great distance to go have fun. We'll travel great distance to go on vacation. We'll spend lots of money to purchase things and take care of ourselves and do things that we want to do. How about danger? So I never do anything dangerous. Have you been alive the last two years? It's dangerous to be alive. Death, death. You know what? The death rate is 100%. People have been looking at viruses and all these things coming out. Well, this one has a death rate of this and death rate of this. Can I tell you what? The death rate of life is 100%. Unless Christ comes back first, everybody in this room will experience physical death at some point. See, the problem is not one of resources, it's a problem of priority. It's a problem of priority. It's a question of how am I going to use the life God has given me? Paul didn't let distance deter him. He didn't let the danger, he didn't let even death deter him from following Christ. Now, you might still be thinking, well, that's nice for Paul that he was going to Jerusalem, and he wasn't going to let any of those things deter him. Why was his priority on going to Jerusalem? What what was so special about this trip to Jerusalem that it was worth traveling great distance for great personal danger, possibly even death? What is really worth that? Well, I want us to take some time. I'm going to take you to a few other passages of Scripture here to see this, because in the book of Acts, it's really describing the narrative of the story. Just this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And we don't always understand all the whys from the book of Acts. Some of it we do. But as we look at Paul's writings to other churches, we understand in a better way why he had such a priority on going to Jerusalem. So I want you to see that with me. He says... Just a few pages over, look at Acts 24 and verse 17. I would encourage you, if you're taking notes, write these references down. Because each of these would be another sermon in itself or several. But this helps us to understand why Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem. Acts 24, 17. Now, after many years, I came. He came to Jerusalem, he's talking about, to bring alms to my nation and offerings. We know he's going to Jerusalem. It's taken him a lot of years to get there, but now he's there with an offering, right? Look over to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, verses 25 to 27. Paul says, But now I go unto Jerusalem to minister unto the saints. For it hath pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are at Jerusalem. It hath pleased them verily, and their debtors they are. This is really interesting. For if the Gentiles have been made partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister unto them in carnal things. say, what is he talking about? Hey, God...
to Abraham, the father of the Jews, that through his seed the whole earth of the Jews and God's work through the Jewish people. Because of that, the opportunity to be a physical carnal thing sometimes He lay by him in store as God hath prospered him that the To Jerusalem. I like this. Paul's saying, you don't have to trust me with the money. Trust your own leaders with the money, and we'll take it to Jerusalem. And he says in verse 4, if it be meet that I go also, they shall go with me. So at this point, when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he doesn't know for sure if he's going to be able to go to Jerusalem. But he says, if I'm able to go, mean not that other men be eased and ye burdened. Paul says this, when you're giving an offering... It's not so we can rob from the rich to give to the poor and just ease other people. No, he explains it in more detail. Look at the next verse. Verse 14, But by an equality that now at this time, it often goes on in our society today, where uh, our leaders try to pit the rich against the poor and the poor against the rich, saying, well, the rich don't pay their fair share and the, and the poor, well, the poor don't work hard enough and all this back and forth and all of it is just to try to get people turning against each other. Paul says, the reason for your giving is not to be a burden to one and just ease the burden of somebody else. He says, no, it's much better than that. It's you can be a blessing to them in their time of need so that they, in turn, through their abundance, can be a blessing to you. Do you see how the body of Christ is working together here? It's a beautiful picture. See, there are times when you're going to be struggling and you need help. And there's going to be somebody in the body of Christ that's able to help you spiritually, encourage you physically, maybe even supply a financial need. But it's not just so you can be a burden to them and they can fix your burden. It's so that as you go through times of abundance and they go through times of weakness, you're able to help pick them up just the same way they were picking you up. And the body of Christ is working together. There's, there's an equality. It doesn't mean everybody has the same amount of money or everybody lives in the same house or that it's spiritual communism. No. It's just saying, I'm here to help you lift your burden when you're weak, and then you'll be there to help me lift my burden when I'm weak. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the body of Christ? And this is what Paul is working to bring about through this specials in these Gentile churches towards the Jewish believers in the church at Jerusalem.
Now look at 2 Corinthians 9, verses 12 and 13. 2 Corinthians 9, verses 12 and 13. Paul says, For the administration of this service, so administering this offering, this gift, not only supplieth the want of the saints, this is really cool, this isn't just to meet a physical financial need, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. You see, when you give to God, when you give to His work, when you give to encourage others, whether it be missionaries or the work of the church, it doesn't just meet a financial need. It is such that it will cause other people to give thanks to God and praise Him. And he talks about this in more detail in verse 13. He says, whilst by the experiment of this ministration. So that's an interesting word. Well, this was the first time this had ever been done. See, the Jews and Gentiles by nature did not get along. There was a lot to divide them. And so Paul says, I want to do something to help bring the body of Christ together. The Jewish believers in Jerusalem are in great physical need. Persecution was tough in Jerusalem. So where kind of the church had started in Jerusalem was now going through a time of great struggle. But it was the church in Jerusalem that then sent out to Antioch another place, and the church at Antioch had sent missionaries. So he's saying there's a debt that the Gentile believers owe to the a spiritual debt that they owe to the church at Jerusalem. And now, by meeting this physical need, the Gentile believers can help encourage this church. And through this, through this experiment, he says, the ministration of they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men. Again, a lot of big words. So as the Gentile believers give to the Jewish believers, it will encourage the Jewish believers that the Gentile believers really were believers in Christ. Remember, this has been an issue throughout the book of Acts. As Gentiles trusted in Jesus, there were Jewish believers that, ah, we're not sure unless they get circumcised. We don't know if they're really believers, if they're really followers of God. And Paul had dealt with this issue in Acts chapter 15 in the Jerusalem council. But this was kind of an ongoing recurring thing. They really doubted whether you could really be saved if you weren't a Jew. And before we make fun of the Jews, listen, they had been the recipients of God's promises and God's blessings for thousands of years. So now to try to think that, well, these Gentiles who are coming from a pagan background, that they can have anything like we have, that just was outside the bounds of their thinking. And so Paul was going to use this offering as a demonstration to the church in Jerusalem that these Gentile believers were genuine believers, having been transformed by the gospel of Christ, so much so that Gentiles, who didn't like Jews either, would give financially to meet needs of brothers in Christ whom they had never even met. You see what's going on here with this offering? It's a big deal. It's a big deal. And he says, and through this, the Jews will then glorify God because of your professed subjection unto the gospel and to your liberal, as you gave generously, to them and unto all men. Are you starting to get the idea of why Paul had such a high priority on getting this offering to Jerusalem? Now, why do you think it was Paul that had to take the offering? Or that Paul wanted to take, I mean, couldn't he have sent somebody else to take the offering? Well, in, earlier on in Corinthians, he said he might have to, but if he was able, he would go. And now he says, I'm able. They said, well, it's a long distance. He said, I'm still going to go. Well, it's going to be difficult and dangerous. You still go. Look over one more passage of Scripture. I know we're looking at a lot of verses, but I just want you to really get an understanding of this offering and its value and importance because otherwise we can read through the pages of Scripture and kind of go, well, that's interesting, but I don't see how that applies to me. This really does apply to us. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, 11 and I'm going to read down through verse 22. This is a lot, so you're listening well this morning. It says, Wherefore remember, he said, That ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. 
So the Jews, those who were circumcised, would look down on the Gentiles and say, look at those uncircumcised. They called them uncircumcision. And he said, you were, you were Gentiles in the flesh. Look at verse 12, that at that time ye were without Christ. Hey, Gentiles, your problem wasn't the fact that you were uncircumcised. The problem was you were without Christ. He says, you were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Fascinating phrase because the Gentiles had a lot of gods, little g gods, but they didn't know God. Paul dealt with that in Acts 17 as he preached on Mars Hill. He says, but now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. You were far away. You didn't know God. You didn't have God. But now through Christ, you're brought near. For He, Christ, is our peace, who hath made both Jews and Gentiles one. And he's broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinance, for to make in himself of twain one new man. This is the body of Christ, the church. Jews, Gentiles, people from all over. He brings them together. Look around this morning. God's done that here, hasn't he? And he's doing that all over this world. And he says, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinance, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off. You Gentiles, you were a long ways away. He preached peace. Amen. And to them that were nigh. He preached peace to the Jews and the Gentiles. For through Him, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers, foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the household of God. Gentiles, you're not on the outside anymore. You're part of the family. You're part of the body. And that's through the work of Jesus Christ and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. God's will is always good. It doesn't always feel good. God's will would send Paul back to Jerusalem with an offering. Why would Paul go to Jerusalem with an offering? Well, because this offering was a demonstration to the Jewish believers and really to the Gentile believers that God was taking people from no matter what background they came from and in Christ they were one. Well, why would Paul need to take this offering? Well, Paul, remember what he was. He was one of the persecutors in Jerusalem. But Paul's a Jew, a Pharisee, no less. And he had been sent out by God as the apostle to the Gentiles. And now, having seen all of these Gentiles come to Christ, all of these churches started around the Gentile world, Paul is now saying, okay, now it's time to take the evidence of what God is doing in the Gentile world, not just a testimony with my lips, but a testimony of their generosity as they're giving to meet the financial needs. People can talk a good game, but when they start putting money where their mouth is, all of a sudden people go, wow, they must really believe what they're saying. And that's what's happening here. Paul says, I want the church in Jerusalem to see that the Gentile Christians would put their money where their mouth is, that they've been changed by the work of the gospel, so they're now going to give to help these Jerusalem saints who are in a time of need. 
not to be a burden to the Gentile churches or just to take care of the financial needs of the Jewish church. No, that through it all they would see we're part of one church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, that in Jesus Christ we are together serving God faithfully wherever He wants us to go. God's will is always good. And it was really good that it was God's will that He would send Paul over a great distance in spite of great danger, even facing death, so that he might be able to take this message in the form of this offering to the believers in Jerusalem. You see, God was putting Paul in a position to help unite the church. You say, well, why is that so good for us? Because we're descendants of that church. We are recipients of that grace. We're heirs of the inheritance that's been left to us because of the faithfulness of believers like Paul. And believers like in all those churches around the Gentile world who were willing to give. And believers in Jerusalem who, as they received the gift, rejoiced in God's faithfulness and goodness. And it encouraged the whole church together to unite. Because listen, the persecution was still going to come in even greater ways to the church. But it united them together. Why? Because they had a common purpose and priority. God's will is always good. The question is, will you and I follow it? Will we submit ourselves to it? Will we obey it? It doesn't always feel good. It sometimes takes a lot of resources to follow it. It sometimes requires even facing danger, even death. But our problem is not one of a lack of resources. Our problem is our priority. So as I look at this this morning, I'll be honest with you, sometimes the distance required or the resources required to do what God wants me to do can be overwhelming. You say, Lord, I, I don't know if I can do all that. And you've told me in your word to go and to preach the gospel to every creature. I, that's a lot to think about. It's going to take a lot of time. It's going to take a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of know-how. There's going to be people I don't have the answers for. How do I do that? I have to look back and say, wait a minute, God, you've given me everything that I need to serve you. What's your priority this morning? Lord, if I were to follow you, it might be a little scary, dangerous. People don't always appreciate people that are standing for Christ and doing right. It's dangerous just to be alive. But rather than just letting that motivate you, because that might cause you just to go in a little hole and try to hide out and extend your life as long as you can. No, remember, you have the almighty God. And if you're walking with him, there's nothing that can separate yeah. you from the love of God. Not height, nor depth. No creature, no principality, no power. Not even death can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That final point, I don't know if you got it or not, but I think it's made evident by Paul's life. Doing God's will is the greatest achievement of any believer. Doing God's will is the greatest achievement of any believer. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. This morning... This afternoon, I don't know about you, but the Lord convicted my heart this week that I need to live every day just saying, Lord, here am I. Maybe you've let the distance or the things that it requires to follow God keep you from really trusting in Him and obeying what He wants you to do. Well, I'd have to give this up. I couldn't do that. I can't go there. Lord, hear my. Maybe you've been afraid. It's easy to let our fears keep us from following God because of the danger out there. What will people say? What will people do? 
God's with us. God's with you. If you're walking with Him. There's no place where you sense God's presence any more than when you are right in the center of God's will. If you're not in God's will, you probably aren't sensing His presence in your life and direction. Well, but I might die. Yeah, so will all of us. But I'd rather die serving God and hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, than die away from God. After all he's done for you and me. Jesus already died for you. He made himself a sacrifice. And he asked of us to present our bodies as living sacrifices back to him. The Lord's spoken to your heart this morning. Just a moment, I'm going to pray. Just invite you to come and say, Lord, I'm going to give it all back to you. These things, maybe you have done this before. This is not like a, well, I've already trusted God, and so I don't need to trust him again. No, we need to do this every day. Lord, I've allowed the distractions, the things of this world to get in between where you want me to be. Lord, I'll serve you. Let's pray. Lord, help us now. We need you to follow you. Thank you for our church. Thank you for the work you're doing here. Help us to be sensitive to your leading now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you're able, stand to your feet. Some are coming to the front to pray. As the piano plays, you come. Trust the Lord. Confess to Him your fears, your struggles. Lord, I need you. I'll serve you. I'll go where you want me to go. Do what you want me to do.